Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before I introduce our guest, I'm excited to share with you a project I've been working on for the last few months. Over the last 14 months, the team and I have spoken with law firm leaders, innovators, entrepreneurs, as well as knowledge professionals. We're hosting a summit with these rock stars to cover actionable strategies and tactics that you can implement for your practice. It's a completely free event and of course will be held virtually and you can register for it at fringelegal.com slash summit. That's S-U-M-M-I-T summit. It's absolutely free. And even if you can't make the date, I encourage you to register so you can actually get access to the recording afterwards. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today I am joined by Maz Jamnajad, who is the Head of Innovation at Linklaters in Italy. Uh, he's joined from the south of Italy today where it's nice and sunny, a stark contrast to uh, fall, autumn, winter day in Chicago for me. But uh, Maz, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you, Ab. And we, we had a very quick chat about some of the things we talked about, and we already started going off topic, which is fantastic. Uh, so I think this is going to be a good episode where we'll dig into quite a bit. But I guess to, to get us started, you've had quite, quite an interesting career. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I guess, how did you get to being the head of innovation where you are now? What's your journey been like? Yes, it's been, it's been a colorful journey. I mean, I started as a trainee at a big law firm and qualified into their litigation and investigations practice. And I actually decided to have a change of career and left law entirely, you know, lost my certificate and went to work for the government. Hmm. And I was at HM Treasury working on creating the system by which the budget is written. Okay. Which is actually quite an innovation task in itself because you get, you've got to gather hundreds of ideas from across government. You've got to generate those ideas. You've got to filter them according to some criteria. Mm. And I did that for a while and decided to move back to law. And when I came back, it was just at that stage where you had these super massive cases that were starting to start on the investigation side. Yeah. And because I'd been a kind of project manager and had to learn about HR systems outside of law, I ended up bringing a kind of different approach to those cases where at the time the, the standard toolkit that law firms had didn't really allow you to, to, to service that size of a case. You know, we had you know, hundreds of millions of documents. We had 500 people working on the case at the same time, etc. And then through that experience, I was asked to go on secondment to the innovation team to help them kind of be the bridge between the innovators and the, the lawyers and ended up staying. And I became head of global head of innovation there. At, uh, that was at Freshfields. And and that was at the time, you know, kind of two years ago when innovation was starting to mature into 
the different disciplines you see in it now. And increasingly, you don't have the same concept of an innovation generalist. You start to see these verticals of project managers, continuous improvement, legal tech. And so I helped differentiate those, understand what the different disciplines are, understand how you can train people to learn them, experiment with different um, different backgrounds. And then uh, kind of earlier this year, just decided to have a complete change of scenery. So I, I moved down to Lecce in the south of Italy, where um, my, my family lives and kind of grows olives out in the countryside. And I'm here between... <laughs> two coasts in this kind of old Roman town and found a role with, with Linklaters helping from here mm. where we have a small office service their Italian operation kind of across the country, mainly in Milan. Wow. Yeah. Very, very colorful journey for sure. And qu- quite a few bits to unpack there. If you don't mind, if you can take your time back to the treasury, what you did there, sort of putting the systems in place, was quite an innovation type role. Was that innovation as it was seen by others involved as well? Or was that sort of your foresight to to think about, you know, what may be considered an innovation type role and what you could then take into legal when you came back? So, you know, actually, you know, in in coming up with ideas, sort of prioritizing them and creating these packages and so on. Was that by design, I guess, is what I'm asking? Well, it wasn't by design. And I think that the that innovation is is a longstanding practice in business, government, professional services. We've only really started to badge it as such recently. So if you look at the the underlying concept of writing a budget, you know, a budget is... 300 changes to the spending and tax system. Right. You've got to go out, you've got to get more ideas than that, which is what we now call ideation, but mm-hmm. didn't used to have a name. Yeah. And you bring it in, you assess them according to which one's better and which ones fit together and which ones are going to serve your clients, your customers, in this case, the general public. Mm-hmm. You put together them in packs and you present them in a way that's going to be kind of advertising to people. And we didn't think of it as innovation at the time that we did it. And interestingly, when I came back to practice, it hadn't occurred to me that there'd be an overlap between them. And I think that even then, we weren't thinking about the work that we're doing as innovation. So when you think about those super massive cases at the beginnings, we're developing those HR structures and really started to push the limits of what e-discovery tools, for example, could do. There wasn't a, there wasn't a trade of innovation at the time who'd come in and help you. That was just, that was lawyers working out how to use technology, working directly with vendors, sometimes having project managers and vendors or internally who'd support you. But it was quite it was quite hands on. And actually, one of the one of the kind of provocations I I often give when people say, you know, lawyers aren't terribly innovative; they can't deal with new technology. And I'll say, well, they did manage to absorb computers, <laughs> instantaneous communications, global travel, yeah. all of these things that have completely transformed the way that legal practice has changed over the last 150, 200 years. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that AI has changed what we do more than electricity did. <laughs> and somehow they were able to absorb that. So actually, 
uh, you know, what, what, where's the gap? You know, we always assume that they can't absorb technology, but maybe they can. Yeah, and I think that that's such an important point because it is very much that that question of asking and understanding where is the gap because, I mean, I, I speak to lawyers and firms and firm leadership quite frequently and I rebut any time I hear that lawyers are not very good with technology. They don't like adopting new things and so on because it's frankly just untrue. It's just identifying and positioning it, you know, going back to, uh, I guess, the sort of the ideation and then sort of becoming customer centric and all of those kind of aspects and a bit of the design thinking realm there. How do you position something in a way that as an end user, I see the benefit of it? Because frankly, if you look at most lawyers, partners, all the way down to trainees and others, you are seeing that people have the latest phones, they have multiple devices, they have you know all sorts of crazy and funky gadgets going on, and they know how to use it to be able to do certain tasks. And for the most part, they have learned how to do this themselves. So if they can figure that out, they can figure out other technologies as well, right? But only if there is buy-in and they see why they should care. And that's the gap in, in, in a lot of cases, not every case, but that certainly makes a big difference. Yes, and finding what that motivation is 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 difficult. It's elusive, <laughs> and I've got I've got the benefit that I so I spend a lot of time with clients, and so I get to experiment with lots of different types of organisation and lots of different types of practice inside law firms, and I can try saying different things to them and see kind of what <laughs> resonates. And one of the things that has been interesting to me recently is I've been more direct with people is profit isn't a big motivator yeah. at law firms. So you say to people, you know, you can introduce a tool that's going to increase your margins, going to introduce your recovery. That kind of doesn't seem to scratch their itch. Um, I thought for a while we're talking about, you know, lawyers often complain that my work isn't interesting enough. Mm. And actually that, again, doesn't quite doesn't quite motivate them. I've started experimenting recently with making it all about working hours, mm -hmm. you know, getting, so I did an exercise in Milan about six months ago where I took a team of trainees and I got them to map out what time they get to work, what time they leave, mm -hmm. what they do during those hours, and then what time they'd like to leave. And then say, well, okay, you've got a, you've got, you know, four blocks of work you're doing here that are taking up whatever, a cumulative 16 hours. If you want to get that down to 10 hours, what are the things you can drop? What are the things you can shave? What are the things you can incorporate to make it more efficient to try and link it back to a real world motivation? Yeah, and, and, and that's so important because, it, and obviously the motivation is, uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately, I don't know, it's not a, a static thing. And over time, it will change for different individuals, it will change. But, you know, I think finding that key, and obviously you are in a very lucky position where you get to experiment uh, and actually see what lands. And I mean, ultimately, that's really what it takes. There's no defined answers for most problems. And you do have to go out there and ask the right questions, make certain assumptions and just try things out. And, you know, if they work, fantastic. You tweak them further. If they don't, you learn a lesson from it. And then, you know, you revise it, pivot and come back with a, with a new proposition. But I, I think certainly 
I mean, it's it's a common thing across a lot of industries, and it, it's slowly permeating into law firms. And you're right, you know, it, it seems to be all about, and it, it's the obvious thing you think it's to do with profits is is to do with, you know, how do you increase the 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 recovery rates for certain things? But ultimately, at a human level, at an individual level, um, finding that work life balance has certainly become important. And a lot of companies obviously experiment with having shorter work weeks and not saying it's right for everyone. And even there's some smaller law firms. So there's a, a law firm, I think, in Orlando and Florida that, I mean, they're a small firm, they're 24 employees, and they tend their practice and said, look, we're only going to have a four-day work week. And for them, it was a great decision. They, they saw huge increases in productivity, but it, it is, you know, it's something to be careful of. You know, is this one of those sort of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies or is this a selection bias where you're seeing the right things because you want to see them and not because what the results are? But absolutely agree with you that, you know, understanding that motivation is key in making sure that you're able to move people in the direction that they want to move rather than forcing them to go in a certain way. No, absolutely. And also, I think not assuming that what we in our respective professions think is cool is what they think is cool. <laughs> so, 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 so actually, you know, quite a lot of lawyers see their job as being artisanal. You know, they mm. are they are skilled craftsmen doing something that's too complicated for, for anyone else to comprehend. Yeah. And when you when you turn around and you say, well, actually, I'm going to subdivide this into 39 individual parts and I'm going to bring in, you know, machinery to do some of it and the rest I'm going to send to paralegals. So it's, it's kind of challenging for the yeah. way that they think about themselves and their role. And, and again, you know, in terms of approaches to work, you know, one of the things I've been trying to flip the conversation into recently is about quality. Is to say, well, yeah. okay, that's fine, but... If this piece of machinery can reduce the number of typos in your contracts, you know, would you rather put out contracts with more typos in them? If this bit of AI or, you know, machine learning can increase the accuracy of the calls you make in e-discovery and contract review, et cetera, do you not want to be giving the most accurate information to the client? And I think that, that starts to change people's relationships that it's not about just slicing a bit off to increase the margin but it's about it's about a better quality of product yep and and, and that's super important actually i was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago i wrote a piece which hopefully comes out later, later this month or december and it was around how how over time law firms in particular have been measured to to know what is a prestigious law firm or a successful law firm you can put it another way and you know that that measure of prestige and success has certainly changed over time and you know hundreds of years ago it used to be and hundreds of years ago in some jurisdictions i should say but it used to be about who can provide the most tailored bespoke service possible and the firms that were seen to be the most prestigious had just the most wide array of 
people in place to be able to cater to anything and everything. Then it became about profits uh, since it became public knowledge what the profit per partner was. And that's probably still the case now, it could be argued. And now it's changing again. So really, what is the new measure of success? That becomes so important. And this point about providing this artisanal service is right on, but you have to think about it as the practice of law is as much of a science as is an art. And how mm -hmm. do you map out which bit is art? And that could be the artisanal part and which bit is science. That's the process driven part and understanding again, what do you want as the end result? And it is to provide the highest quality of service to your clients. And, you know, it, it just boggles my mind why you wouldn't spend so much time thinking through that science part and really understanding, great, I want to maybe automate or certainly have some sort of checks in place or something along those lines to make sure that this scientific part is as efficient and effective as possible, which leaves me as the lawyer to focus the most amount of time on only doing the artisanal part, you know, the artistic parts that are things only I can provide as an individual. I mean, it, it sounds simple. Yes. It's much harder in practice. Well, well, the, the it's interesting to think about the challenges you go when you raise that with lawyers. So the mm. first thing they'll normally say to you is, well, look, what you're kind of saying there is you want to take away, automate, et cetera, the really basic bits of product. And if my guys aren't doing proofreading or translating contracts, then they're not going to be able to do higher level work on them either. And the, 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 the conversation I always bring people back to is redlining. Yes. So if you talk to someone who's 20 years older than you and I, and you say, what did you used to do as a trainee? Well, the answer is they spend all of their time redlining changes in contracts by, mm -hmm. by hand, right? You introduce a bit of technology which makes it instantaneous. And I don't think anyone now turns around and says, well, actually, lawyers got worse at their jobs because we introduced redlining technology. They no longer have to read contracts or memos. And, and, uh, and I, th I think it's the same here. I think, for, you know, in dividing the world into these two worlds of art and science, I think there's, there's a third realm of mm. business. And one of the, I think that the ability to analyze the practice of law as, as a business function is probably the thing that's most missing among lawyers and both in-house and at firms. And, and the, to take an example of that, a conversation I'll often have with people, with clients, is when they ask for a memo and you say, well, what's the risk you're trying to manage by knowing about this law? Because if the consequences of breach of a particular law mm. are less than the cost it takes to get the advice, then it actually makes more business sense not to get the advice and just to kind of not really give a monkey's whether you breach the law or not. Right? Yep. yep. But that whole frame of analysis is very alien to lawyers, <laughs> you know, and that comes through with things like selecting the level of resource you apply to something like a due diligence exercise. Yeah. So more expensive resource will generally do a due diligence exercise more comprehensively. But the question is, What's the delta in comprehensiveness between the two levels of review mm. 
And can you quantify that risk? And does it exceed the level of cost involved? Because if it does, then yeah. you should just have you should have partners doing all your due diligence, right? Yep. Because that would make commercial sense. But if you start to look at it that way, you'll realize that actually, you know, outsourcing, near sourcing, using technology with, you know, lower limits of of accuracy might end up being economically more efficient. Yeah, and and that becomes important because you, you're absolutely right. And you know, my 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 worldview is <laughs> oversimplistic, but the business the business need absolutely needs to be there. And if you can really break things down into those calculated levers that you can sort of push and pull on, it gives you this model, uh, whether it's a mental model or an, a real one, to decide on these things pretty quickly over time. Um, of course, it means that you need to have some data and you need to be able to measure a lot of these things in the first place to know, okay, what if we do this? You know, how does the cost, what are the cost implications? What if we do this? What are the potential risks and so on? And I don't think most firms are doing that. I don't think most people are thinking that way in a law firm, not because they're not capable of it or they don't want to, but I think there's a... A, a piece around education that's maybe missing there, but also I think the pathway and actually having the examples to see or to show if you do this, then these are the benefits. I think that's missing. And it, there are some firms that do this, but it's not public and it's certainly not shared wi widely. So people don't, don't really see why they should do it. I don't know if that's what you find as well. And as you try and get buy-in from lawyers, um, what's the reaction to, to this kind of concept? Well, I think the part of this starts to come down to the fact that each individual person's motivations might be slightly different to others. So I've got one client I've been spending a lot of time with recently doing kind of really, you know, pulling up the drains and getting into their, their legal function and trying to make it more effective. And one of the things I found really works is having some conversations as a group, but having more conversations just one-on-one -on -one with individuals and trying to really understand what that person's career motivations are, what they like and don't like about their job, and approaching what they need to change from that you know, very, very bespoke, very personalized approach. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that helps is, you know, there's a, it's interesting listening to some of your other podcasts with people explaining different disciplines and design thinking, digital improvement and things. And actually one of the things people in our job, I think often get wrong is the difference between doing your homework and needing to show you've done your homework. To, to run a design thinking exercise, people don't have to realize they're in a design thinking exercise. They can just be having a conversation with you. Yep. You're following a structured conversation, but they don't need to be told in advance what the structure of the conversation is going to be or you know what academic discipline led you to do it that way. And actually, I found that, again, people respond better to feeling like the situation's a bit more fluid and casual. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the other way I think people start to get this business approach and also a lot of project management disciplines is when you try and force them to prioritize, you know, you say to them, how many things do you have on your plate? How much time do you have? Can you service all of these? Which ones aren't getting done? Are the ones that aren't getting done the ones that are the least important? 
or are you just dealing with the things that people are yelling at you most about? And once you start to, it starts to again change that frame of vision to people trying to say, okay, when I've got tasks to do, yeah. if I do that, that displaces another task or it displaces my evening. Mm. You know, should I, should I be doing this at all? How should I be doing it? Who can I get to help? Yeah. So I think you, approaching it that way gets your engagement here. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a really good approach, and I really like your point about whether you can have a conversation about a topic without throwing in what that topic is. And design thinking is a good good example of that. And I was actually listening to an interview with uh, I think it was Naval Ravikant, who's the the founder of Angelist and other other companies, and he he made a comment which stuck in my head which probably means that I do it quite frequently myself, which is, you know, when you're learning something new, when you're exploring new ideas, topics, and so on, there is this, this, this curve where you feel initially the need to tell everyone that you're learning something new. Then you feel the need yeah. to show people that you're learning something new and talk about the fact that you're learning something new. And eventually, as you sort of move along this curve towards, and this, I'm just paraphrasing and making up my own thing now, uh, mastery, then you actually stop, just stop talking about, you know, what it is that you're doing. It just becomes a very natural part of your conversation, of your day-to-day -day being and so on. And that's very much the case in every profession. It's, it's, and, you know, when, as you talked about at the very start of the, the recording, your previous role as a global head of innovation, and you even touched on it then as you know, you started noticing there were different disciplines there, right? There was project management, continuous improvement, and, and other things. To, you know, what came across to me is, you know, this is a very natural part of something that you've been engrossed in for some time. So mm. that gets a lot of buy-in from people. It means that you and I here and people listening can actually have this very natural conversation and we don't have to put labels to things. And there is, of course, a time and a place to do that. It allows for further research and development there. But I think lawyers need to be able to do that. Clients need, clients want that, right? They want to have a conversation at a human level, not be schooled all the time. There's certainly need where they want that, where they want that expert guidance. But as you're just talking to someone that you're trusting with your business matters, your legal matters, whatever it might be, there's so much value in them just breaking down those boundaries and being able to simplify because that's really where the skill lies. Can you simplify something that is so complex into something that anyone can understand and then evolve from there? Uh, but I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And I think it is, it, it, it's a really difficult thing for us to learn to simplify things down to that level. You know, I, I was having a conversation today with a couple of our lawyers who've come up with an incredibly elaborate IT project that they want to run involving blockchain and all sorts of concepts. And actually, what I was trying to get them to do was to subdivide that into the simplest constituent parts that they could and say, well, look, what have we got available? How can we start? How can we move ourselves along a journey? Well, eventually, we can do all of those things. But I didn't need to explain waterfall and agile to them. And if I had, I think we'd have ended up in a whole kind of theoretical <laughs> conversation yeah. and I would have lost them. But the core concept of it is start with little things you can really achieve rather than one big thing that you'll never get to. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the core of design thinking of 
you know, how do you start with the viewpoint of the user on the viewpoint of what you want to do or simplifying continuous improvement down to just how do you strip waste out of the way that we work? Yeah. You know, it's, it's contentious because a lot of people in our trade think that if you haven't got a, a black belt in Lean Six Sigma, you shouldn't be talking about continuous improvement. Mm. But actually, maybe that core kernel of it is kind of all you need for a lot of what we're doing. Yeah, and I mean, you can take any one of the, the topics that we're talking about today and a bunch of things that we just touched on and write entire books and tomes on them. doesn't mean that you should, and there's a time and a place for that for sure because there is value in having, again, mastery within those subtopics. But really, you know, the the core, the very basic concept is when you're thinking about how law firms and lawyers and individuals, a business professional really should be handling how they approach a problem. Think about it from a multidisciplinary point of view. For a law firm, that means that if you're thinking about an innovation project, just know that there is going to be some combination of people involved that will need to do tasks relating to knowledge management, that will need to do tasks relating, relating sure. to security, to procurement, to you know how technologies implement it. Doesn't, and you should certainly break down those tasks into, as you said, small constituent parts, but you don't have to label every single process as, you know, whatever methodology applies to. That's good when you're learning things. It doesn't need to be outlined every single time because really the true, at least to me, the true barometer of success is as you're learning things, you're following a framework frequently. But over time, the framework should just become part of how you do things. Right. It shouldn't be I'm following this framework. It's like this is just how I do do things to be as successful, as efficient, as effective as possible. Uh, that's exactly right. And and I think it applies not only to the frameworks, but applies to the substance of the jobs as well. But, you know, if you it, it might be a contentious view, but I think that quite a lot of legal innovation doesn't achieve results. I think, you know, if you look at, you know, time spent on talking about the subject versus the number of real world effects, right. it, it, it's not what you'd expect, right? Yep. And I think one of the problems is overly ambitious projects. One of the things I'll often say to clients when I go into them is to say, you know, when we start this journey, realize that most of your competitors have done this and have achieved absolutely nothing nothing <laughs> so if you achieve if you achieve anything you're ahead of the market yes. can we leave at the end of two days with a single thing that is demonstrably different than when we got here and again with design thinking i've kind of moved off from trying to get people to come up with a list of priorities mm. to forcing them to pick a single thing yeah. You've only allowed one, and then we'll come back in three months and we'll do another one. And actually, that that simplification, the same on project management, starts to, I think, start to create that rhythm of results, which is what you want to get, you know, to, to unstick the cogs. Yeah, uh, very much so. And I couldn't agree more. Actually, there's, there's uh, one of my all time favorite books is actually called The One Thing. Uh, fantastic book mm. for anyone who hasn't read it. And it's just about you should have this one single thing that you can drive towards that, as you said, demonstrably shows that you've made progress. Right. And you just repeat that over and over and over again. And before you know it, with the magical compounding, you have something fantastic. And Absolutely. You know, I really like this, the, the, the example that you gave on, you know, the time spent 
on the project versus the real results. That there is such a uh, disparity there. And I think a lot of the times, if you think about legal technology, for example, a lot of the time it is simply because people are not spending as much time as they should and they need to understanding what problem are you trying to solve. Instead, you sort of pick something uh, that's a tool and then, you know, try and fit it into whatever magical problem that you can come up with at that point. And that's, of course, not the right approach, right? You need to make sure that you've done the work to really understand what do I want to achieve and then how do I get there? So understand the process before the tools. It, it, it creates some challenges as well, this approach in the way we communicate with our organizations. So I had one organization recently that told me they'd done an analysis and more than 50%, they wouldn't tell me how much, there was a lot more than 50% of their emails are unopened, right? So most emails that people receive, they never open. Right. And, and you think, well, actually, what's kind of led us to that situation where we've lost, we've lost the relationship to the point where people aren't even reading what we said? And so one of the things I took away from that when I came back that we we're applying in, in, in Linklater's in Italy at the moment is to have a results-only innovation conversation with the office. We will consult with them to find out what their needs are. And when I've got a list of needs, I'll consult with, you know, a group of people to help me develop that product. But actually, why do we need office-wide communications about something I'm doing with the employment team? Mm. Or why do we need to trumpet all these successes all the time? Or to tell people that we're going to be working on something. Actually, if you flip that around, so the only things you basically announce to people are when you've done something that will help them get home earlier, deliver a higher quality, whatever it is you're trying to achieve for them, then their incentive to, it not only reduces the volume of communications, but it changes their incentive to read them. Because the only things they're getting sent are things that are going to make their lives better. And how, how do you deal with, in, in that example, the balance of ensuring that people aren't just working in silos and there is the, the collaboration across different groups and areas and business units? Because, you know, in, in, some, in some instances, it will be, pretty clear cut that maybe this isn't a office wide communication, but in, I would imagine at least some instances, maybe 20%, it's not as obvious. And how do you make that decision? Because that could have some repercussions down the line. I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Uh, absolutely. I think that there are, you're right. There's a, there's a mix of things you're trying to do and a mix of approaches. So one is, well, let's take an example. Um, we're looking at document collaboration tools. Mm -hmm things that allow more than one person to edit a document at the same time, yeah? Now, I need to have a cross-practice group input into that, mm. but I also don't need every person from every practice group to input into that. Yep. So there, I asked for, I reached out to the groups that I thought were most likely to be interested in being involved, and asked for a volunteer from each team to make a little cross-sector kind of squad mm -hmm. to work on it. So you get that view. The other thing you can do is, let's say you want to introduce something to make trainees' lives better. Again, maybe you don't need to talk to every single trainee, but you can take five or six of them and do a deep dive. And if you've selected that group well, you think, well, 
based on the sample size I'm taking, it's probable that the major issues are going to kind of end up getting flushed out. And then there's some things like where you end up needing to launch a cross office, for example, where at the moment modernizing the way we do translation, mm-hmm. which is a big part of what you do as uh, an Italian operation within a kind of London centered law firm. Yeah. And for that, you know, that's something that every single person in our business services teams and our secretarial teams, operations, and every single practice group is doing. And you're right, there, you end up having much more of a cross-office communication. But but at least choose which one those are mm. rather than, you know, do by default for everything. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good approach. And I think that's a good good way to at least starting to solve for that kind of problem. And just being conscious of time. I guess mm. one of the things I wanted to, you know, you obviously do a lot of work, it sounds like, with clients and, you know, helping mm. them map out some sort of innovation strategy. So, well, two questions. What does that mean for you, right, in sort of in terms of mapping out innovation strategies? And I just sort of made this up. I'm not sure if part of your, your, your job role at all. And two, as you do speak with clients, what, what's, their take, what's their take in all of this, right? What's their expectations from law firms, from counsel and generally from from the profession are they are they quite on board in a lot of the things that we've discussed so far are you finding the same kind of hesitations so let's tackle the the innovation strategy aspect first and we'll go into the second part yes okay so 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 again i will often not be describing these conversations from a strictly innovation lens. Mm-hmm. What you're really doing is trying to increase the effectiveness of legal departments. And so what that really means is you're trying to get them to service their clients more fully within the resources that they've got. Because almost all legal departments are under resource pressure. So they yep. generally can't get extra headcount and are under pressure from really demanding people in the business because that's what's like being a service provider. Right. And so and so the way the conversation tends to work is you try and map out what that team does. Mm. You try and get a sense of basically the ways in which it's dissatisfied with itself. You know, what what isn't it providing the level of service it wants to to its clients? Mm-hmm. I find in-house legal teams normally really conscientious. They're just desperate to do the best job that they possibly can for the business and feel yeah. a bit kind of sad that a lot of the time they can't turn things around as quickly as they want to or they have to say no to people. And And then you try and work out, well, what are the intervention points that – are most likely to help them achieve that. So, for example, a client at the moment, you talk to them and you realize that one of the biggest pain points they're creating for the business is in terms of the time it takes to get signatures. Mm. And so you say, well, let's in that case focus on an e-signature tool to try and address address that problem. But what that's going to be depends from function to function. But the, the biggest problem that you get as you work through this process with the in-house teams is that... Uh, there's almost always a common cause for the problem, right? So you first of all come in, they've got a service they want to be providing. And then secondly, there's a technological solution that might do that or they want to do or some sort of sophisticated solution, Mm. outsourcing, et cetera. And then they can't do that because they don't have a process. And you realize they can't really make a process because there's no 
common agreement on how they go about the work. They've got no common store of documents. There's yeah. different approaches across them. And so almost invariably, you end up decluttering ends up being the first <laughs> job. Building, building playbooks for how they do contract review, building libraries of precedents, working on their templates, trying to get them to agree between them how they're going to go about tasks. And then interestingly, once they've done that, it's not always clear to me that they then need the outsourcing and the technology and the rest of it. Right. Because if you can find that if you've if you've got a clear process and you've got a clear template and you can find it all really easily and you're all on the same page, you probably made so much efficiency that <laughs> there's more decluttering to do before you then go on to implementing your contract lifecycle management tool. Mm. And it's really quite an interesting problem to have. So firstly, actually, I really like that concept of finding the intervention point. I'm definitely stealing that from you. And then thinking through, you know, what is the common cause of that problem? Because actually, you know, I, I get it sounds like from what you're doing, you probably have a very nice wide purview where you can start spotting trends and patterns as you speak to different clients. And over time, you can start identifying a lot of these these issues pretty easily. But how do you get the you know the, the client to be able to see that? And you're right, actually, having that playbook just decluttering will probably make a huge, huge impact. And, and one of the things I mentioned at the start is, you know, really, if you want to be successful. A lot of people can get to becoming successful by, you know, because they have a lot of skills and talent, but really you, at some point you have to map that to a process and think about it like a recipe. Okay. I have a recipe for success. What are the ingredients? And after you know that that's where you can start sort of, you know, making adjustments to get the result you want every single time. It is that I think that repeatability element is so important and that's that's the hardest thing to do. And that's what you get when you declutter and put a process in place. And frankly, once you have that and you can throw technology at the mix, you can throw really good people at the mix mm. and you just start going to another level altogether. And that's where, I mean, you know, you're talking about you're already in front of the, your, of your competition, but that just allows you to transcend to an entirely new plane. Um, that sounds very hyperbolic, but I think it's right. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. The problem is that people don't want to have to do the foundational work first, mm. which is where it's really difficult. I mean, I did a, I did a very long project with, with, with one client over months, and then it kind of culminated in their in-house team presenting to their executive board their approach. And I was really yeah. proud of them. You know, it was all very, it's all about the foundational work. It's all about sorting out all of our systems. It's all about clarity. Mm. And they stopped and the GC looks at them and says, okay, but if we could adopt two bits of AI, what would they be? <laughs> and you think, well, you know, it's actually, you just can't, you can't shake people off understanding you need to do that homework first. So it's, yeah. it's challenging. But it's, it's also, but, and I'm trying to do this with my, with my team. So I have a team of really talented people. I have a small, but very effective team and they're all really good. They all have great skills and we're, we're putting in place a process at the moment where they have to go through and actually map what they're doing to a process, not because mm. it will help them right now, 
Because actually, honestly, in the short term, it's a painful exercise, right? Because you have to go from being unconsciously good to be consciously aware of what makes you good. But as I pitch to them, and I think I have buy-in, we'll find out that if they do this, you know, after doing this for three cycles, you know, it's once per month, then this will become a automatic thing where we know exactly for each one of them where we need to make the adjustment to make them exceptional. And that that is important, but it is it is difficult. I get I get it because it is a well, too where you want to spend more time doing probably more admin type work, the process work, the groundwork, uh, that doesn't give you any short-term results, right? But it's having that mid-long-term focus mindset. Well, the advice I'd give for, you know, the type of, the type of work you're trying to, to do there is mm. that my, there's no such thing as too high level. Yeah. Almost, almost any process mapping ends up, well, I mean, number one, I, I've never done it and not realized that we've been doing it wrong. <laughs> so any any process mapping, I think, immediately starts to flush out inefficiencies or misordering. Yeah. It also starts to take away, you start to build up a, a rhythm of confidence. People do, so often I'll challenge people to do their job in, reduce it to maybe four or five boxes. Yeah. Ten, ten in a row, but instantly you can start having a conversation about whether that's the right order to be doing things, mm. which bits of the roles they need to get help with. And then once they start to see the value, it'll be easier the next iteration for them to change their five boxes into 10 boxes or 20 boxes or 30 boxes. Yeah. But you don't necessarily need to jump straight to the kind of lean Six Sigma sheets <laughs> of A2 all stuck together approach straight away, right? Yeah, exactly. Very much so. And it, I mean, it is definitely, it's definitely a lot of work and it's work in progress, but yeah, it, it just sort of breaking it down into small, small chunks as you, I think, as we can sort of summarize for a lot of this conversation makes a huge <laughs> difference. Perfect. So I'm conscious of time. We have about less than five minutes remaining, uh, I guess. So you're relatively new in your role. You've been there, what, 10 months or so. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be good to maybe speak again in, in a six months, a year's time to see how you progress uh, and how, what the impact, I guess, for a lot of these things are, right? Because at the moment, it seems like you're in a lot of planning, a little bit of execution mode. It'll be great to yeah. see what the measured effects of some of these things are for you, your team, the clients. Um, so it'll be great to catch up. Uh, and anything that you'd last, like to ask the audience, any sort of parting words in closing? Uh, I'd love to come back in a year and have that conversation again. And mm. I think partly that every team that I work with internally and every client that I work with takes a very different approach to how they want to do this. And part of, you know, we were saying this earlier, what, what makes this so interesting, so informative is seeing which of those approaches work, you know, what worked for some people, what didn't work for other people, what the different yeah. speed of progress is. So I think maybe we, I would, I would love to share that. And, you know, if, if anyone had a thought on, ways to make these complicated disciplines more simple so you can cover more of an overview of different types with lawyers. I'd love to hear about that if anyone wanted to get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll include links to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time. Wonderful talking to you about you know a whole bunch of things across the innovation spectrum and uh, look forward to catching up again in the near future to see how things have evolved. I look forward to it. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Priti Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringe.com.